You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. And today's transformative podcast is with Artem Kalinowski, who joins us from Philadelphia, where he's professor at Temple University. Artem is the author of two monographs, Along Goodbye, the Soviet Withdrawal from Afghanistan, that came out with Harvard UP in 2011. And in 2018, he published Laboratory of Socialist Development, Cold War Politics and Decolonization in Soviet Tajikistan, which won the Davis and Hewitt Prizes from the Association of Slavic, East European and Eurasian Studies. Currently, Artem Kalinowski is working on a project that studies the legacies of socialist development in contemporary Central Asia to examine entanglements between socialist and capitalist development approaches in the late 20th century. And today we'll be talking precisely about that. Artem, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to the Transformative Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on. So I know that you've spent quite some time in Tajikistan when collecting materials for your last book. On top of the current border conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, it seems that in the shadow of Russia's war against Ukraine, Central Asia is returning to the center of geopolitics for Russia and China. How would you describe the role of the region's history in the current conflict and its relation to Russia's and China's attempts to expand and consolidate their influence in the region? Yeah, thanks. I actually don't think that Central Asia is all that central to Russia or China at the moment. I think rather that with Russia's war in Ukraine, people are paying more attention to what's going on elsewhere in the post-Soviet world. So Central Asia, which is a region that doesn't get that much attention in Europe or the U.S. and usually gets it for the wrong reasons, is suddenly much more kind of interest to journalists and others. That having been said, of course, yes, it has been important in some ways for Russia in the last six months because it's looking for allies wherever it can. And it's looking for ways to show that it has support for what it's doing internationally. It has been for a while trying to integrate the Central Asian states into a kind of economic and political bloc, which would allow it to, let's say, more freedom of maneuver vis-a-vis -vis Europe and the United States. Over the longer term, what's been important for Russia and China in Central Asia is, first and foremost, stability. Second of all, I think for China, Central Asia has increasingly become a source of natural resources, gas and, and minerals, but actually also agricultural commodities. To secure that access, China has become a major development donor, particularly in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, and has been building uh, roads and rehabilitating power plants or building new ones and, and factories and, and also what critics would call white elephant projects like new parliament buildings and so on. And it's doing it on a scale that, you know, really no Western donors had done since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Russia has not been particularly involved in development, on, except in some spheres and, uh, you know, in education, you could argue Russia's played a role. But Russia has been important for the region, particularly, again, for some of the poorer countries like Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, lesser extent Uzbekistan, as a destination for workers, right? So countries with large and fast-growing populations and economies that aren't doing so well have benefited from economic growth in Russia, in part by having a place where people can go and get jobs and send money home. That, of course, carries with it all sorts of other difficulties, not least of which are the often difficult conditions that these workers face in Russia, lack of social protections, harassment from authorities, harassment from street thugs, racism, and so on. But the economic effect has been substantial, but it has also played into geopolitics in the sense that it's become a lever that Russia can use 
to maintain its leverage over these countries. I don't think the leadership of these countries looks very positively at Russia's invasion of Ukraine, in part because Russia's dominant military power in the region, and particularly in the case of Kazakhstan, it's long been a concern that Russia could take advantage of the large population of ethnic Russians in northern Kazakhstan to do something similar. At the same time, of course, they're not very vocal in their criticism because, again, they in many ways need Russia and are not ready to challenge And your last book was also an attempt to kind of destabilize the liberal or Western-centered understanding of development by moving to the sphere of transnational socialism and decolonization. And I think it's important to go beyond the narrow understanding of the development policies. And you can think of the case of assistance provided by socialist Poland to Vietnam during decolonization. So perhaps we can or even should think of development as aid, gift, and the transfer of know-how that was part of foreign policy and that couldn't be limited to instigating or accelerating economic growth. So what are your thoughts on that? What can we actually learn from case studies of development assistance that was often framed in terms of solidarity during global socialism and transnational socialism? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think trying to pin down what development means can be really tricky because you can find some economists will give you a really simple definition. For example, the Harvard economist, Danny Roderick, in one of his books has something like, development is when people move from sectors of the economy with relatively low productivity to sectors with higher productivity, right? That's development. Whereas you can also go for a kind of maximalist definition that includes things like education and standards of living and equality and social protections and on and on and on and on. First of all, I think we need to distinguish between development as a kind of political economic objective and development aid, right? Because I think states do pursue development internally all the time, right? Whether or not Vietnam received aid from Poland, Vietnamese leaders also had a vision for how they wanted to organize the economy of socialist Vietnam, or for that matter, of, of South Vietnam. Those visions will sometimes fit into dominant paradigms international, whether that's 1950s modernization paradigm, and a big push kind of idea of development, whether that's 1990s Washington consensus development. It might also be different in some subtle ways. And then development aid is the process of assisting countries that are considered to be more developed or wealthier, assisting others in kind of achieving those goals. For that to even happen, there has to be some agreement about what those goals are, right? What the vision of the good life is. Now, of course, inevitably what happens is that there's some imposition of those goals, of those visions of development. And in the case I look at, which is really internal to the Soviet Union, that's of course particularly tricky because... Central Asia is incorporated into the Soviet Union by force, which is not to say that there aren't Central Asian allies who are involved in that process. There are, uh, and even opponents of the Bolshevik regime who in many ways made sure its development goals. But nevertheless, we do have to recognize that the process of aid in any of these cases, of course, always involves not just the material assistance, not just the technical training, but also ultimately an imposition of a vision of how political economy should be organized. The point I think you were making about kind of drawing this sharp line between Western liberal approaches and maybe socialist approaches or others, yeah, I think that's really important. This is something that I underlined in the book and, and I've continued to explore since, which is that since the late 19th century, or maybe even a little bit earlier, the idea that industrial society is kind of the goal was quite dominant, right? And what the Bolsheviks were trying to do 
this speed up the process of moving through the capitalist stage of development to ultimately get to communism, right? That was their vision of development. For them, it was also tied into all sorts of things like creating the new person, creating the new man and woman, right? Somebody who was not bound by tradition, somebody who had a sense of their own ability to remake society and nature, somebody who understood their particular vision of history. But if you look at the kind of development that the United States did, either internally in terms of New Deal projects in the Tennessee Valley or externally when the United States in the 1950s starts doing development abroad, it's never limited to strictly material things, right? I mean, things like educating citizens, creating kind of subjects that are ready to participate in this new economy and create a world that looks like an idealized version of American democracy is very much a part of it. So without kind of overstating the fact, you can see how these practices of development have a lot in common and also, at various points, stumble upon the same kind of difficulties and face similar or analogous kind of choices that then force reforms. Okay, so in light of what we discussed, basically, how would you redefine the meaning of development today? How has your own research perspective on development as a comprehensive theory and societal problem shifted? And how do you think our perspective on development should shift? Well, it depends what we mean by our. Are we talking about historians like you and I who are <laughs> working primarily on the socialist world, the late socialist world? Or are we talking about people who are sitting in the World Bank or in USAID or the EBRD? Because I think that'll differ, right? At the end of the day, I'm very careful, and I think most historians of development would be very careful not to be prescriptive. Among the scholars of development, there are people who are incredibly critical of the entire enterprise, like Arturo Escobar, probably most famously, basically say, you know, this is always a kind of imposition by the more powerful against less powerful. It's, it's another kind of way of exploiting people aren't exploited sufficiently enough for the purposes of capitalism. You know, and there are probably some people who approach this with a, how can we do development better? I think I'm somewhere in the middle in the sense that I'm not comfortable saying we should just kind of give up on this striving for a better life through better access to infrastructure, education, or electricity or a more equal distribution of goods and all of those things could be in principle a part of development. I also think it's not going anywhere. At the same time, I recognize that all of those things that people like Escobar and other critics bring in, they're real. And I think our job as historians of development, this would probably be true for most anthropologists of development, sociologists of development, is to kind of recognize that, right? And kind of ask questions about, well, how did this happen, right? Who got to decide that this was the vision of development? How did they reach that conclusion? How did that idea change over time, right? What kind of intellectual shifts had to happen? What kind of practical difficulties did they encounter? How do visions of development, how do they track or not different visions of the welfare state? What's the relationship between neoliberal development and neoliberal welfare reform, for example? Right, these are the kind of questions that I think as scholars of development rather than development scholars, we try to ask. I mean, but then the question is obviously how should we use it as a kind of on one hand descriptive term and on the other hand, a kind of analytical term. If development mm -hmm. is such a contested, such a spread out, multi-scale phenomenon yeah. and, and term, so how can we actually use it for history writing then? Well, I think you could try to come up with something like treat development as a kind of deliberate attempt to create a new political economy. To leave it, I'm saying that, you know, in a deliberately broad way to include the possibility of could be a socialist political economy It could be a capitalist political economy, but one that includes an idea of improvement, of making things better through technological change and through the use of knowledge. Right? Something like that, I think, is capacious enough and yet 
precise enough to say, okay, this is what we are studying. And then development aid, of course, would be the act of using the resources and expertise of one country or one society or even one region within a country to make that happen somewhere else. Interesting, because your definition is both, I would say, very maximalistic and very minimalistic. So basically what seems to be gluing these two together is the intentions to achieve some kind of progress through means of economic improvement. Yeah, I think that's right, because societies change all the time, and a lot of those changes have nothing to do with anybody's intention. But I think when we're studying, you can find books with the titles like The Development of the Carpent Industry in 15th Century Belgium, right? But obviously, we're not really talking about development then in the same way that, that you and I are discussing it right now. So I think the intentionality is there, and not just the intentionality, but also the kind of deliberate conscious use of some kind of scientific, social scientific knowledge. Um, to make that improvement possible. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bye. You have been listening to the Transformative Podcast produced by Redset in Vienna.